Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Yes, 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 and welcome back to the Fresh Arsenal podcast with me, PB, and delighted again to be joined by Rory. Hello, Rory. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. And for those of you watching us on video for the first time, welcome. We're hoping to bring most of the podcast now with with some sort of visual element, as we mentioned last week. But if you are listening just on audio, don't worry, we will keep it uh, very understandable, hopefully just just through audio. Um, But yeah, if you want to check us out, we're over on YouTube, Um, just search Fresh Arsenal or find all our links on the website. So, Rory, we've had a couple of games since we last spoke and uh, mixed results, I guess you could say. But um, let's start with Chelsea. We won't talk about them too much because I know it was it was quite some time ago. But I think it's definitely worth us covering because it was, for me, a very unrecognisable performance from from the team. I mean, what was your overall thoughts on the, on the performance? Yeah, I kind of agree. It was it was just a it was a weird performance. It was a sort of performance we've not really seen apart from when the title race was pretty much over last season. That sort of performance we've not really seen in like over a year. So it was frustrating. It, it was just such mixed emotions at the end because it's like frustration that why did we play like that for the first seventy minutes? Mm. Uh, but then relief that even having played like that for seventy minutes, we still somehow came away from Stamford Bridge with a draw, which I think, with Chelsea improving, I think by the end of the season, a a point at Stamford Bridge won't look as bad, perhaps, as it feels at the moment. Um, But yeah, it was just just nothing really clicked. The players didn't seem as up for it as you'd think they should do for an away game at Chelsea. Um, but, But like I said, I guess getting out there with a draw was at least something. Yeah, I mean, was that your overall feeling? relief like happy in the end with the point considering where we were i wouldn't i I wasn't happy with the point but i was happier than i I would like if we if we'd left there at 2-0 after Mm. that performance there would have been real concern moving forwards with the rest of the season um especially because it would have been like you could you'd have completely thrown that massive result against city in the bin almost um but yeah, I still wasn't happy because I, I think, you know, I don't want to see that performance at this time of year with everything on the line. But No, no. Yeah, I, I have to say I felt a slight sense of relief because, you know, it was demoralising to see us not turn up so much in, in what is still a big game. You know, Chelsea, obviously a London rival and they, they have got a very expensive side you know, likely to be, as you say, towards the end of the season, we'll look maybe on the draw more favourably. But I think given that we were kind of gifted that opportunity back into the game, it feels better because I'm not sure without that little helping hand, we managed to turn much around at all there. Um, So I think I could see that going a very different way. And then I guess what we saw perhaps is how that maybe helped us in the Seville game. 
um, you know, going into the week. And I did fear at 2-0 how that would impact the Seville game. Suddenly there's a hell of a lot of pressure on that. You know, if you if you come back from the international break on the back of two losses, bottom of your Champions League group, and all those scenarios started running through my head. And I thought, you know, actually getting a point and coming back, having that little bit of momentum might really help us. But yeah, it was it was a shame, I think, to see that performance, particularly because Chelsea fans have been quite um, bullish around um, their turnaround. And we sort of said they haven't played anyone decent weight till they play us kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, I don't think they were that special. They were, but they nullified us really well. I think yeah, more I th- than anything else. Yeah, I think that was the thing. It was like, ultimately, I guess the positive way of looking at it was that actually... You know, both of their goals, I think the penalty's very unlucky. I still disagree with it being a penalty. Like I understand why it was, and I understand that if it had got if it was the other way around, I'd be absolutely screaming for a penalty. But that's unlucky because the header's going wide. And then the second goal is obviously he's just shanked across and it's gone in. And I think Raya should do better. But ultimately, like their two goals were kind of nothing goals. Mm-hmm. Um obviously we should have had we now know we should have had a penalty. Um earlier in that second half and maybe that would have given us that extra 10 minutes to make the full comeback rather than just the draw so the positive thing is that kind of everything went a bit against us uh and we did still get out with a draw um Mm. and like you said i think getting that comeback i think you could tell from declan rice's interview after the game the players did feel like they'd you know they'd done a good job to to get that point back and i think it did carry that momentum into the week so yeah yeah i mean we won't we won't dwell on the referee and stuff too much, but as you say, I think three three big calls that you've definitely seen go the other way um, all went Chelsea's way, didn't it? You know, the, the Palmer incident, we've seen yeah. red cards for that. Um, and as you say, the their penalty. Yeah, I think Chelsea's aim was to nullify us more than anything else. And, you know, maybe they would have taken a point at the start with that in mind, with our form and, you know, where they've been this year. But getting that first goal was always going to be key because of that. And they were sort of gifted it with a 50-50 penalty and then let alone the second goal, which is, you know, a shanked cross essentially. Yes, we probably should do better with it. But, you know what I mean? They didn't really create an awful lot or have to break us down much. Um, And maybe had we you know, got that early red card or we had got a goal out of nothing first, it could have been a very different game. And these small moments really do affect the flow of the game. And it just felt like once Chelsea got that penalty, the fans, the players sensed an opportunity that this could be their sort of announcement victory, if you like, on what's been a really tough 2023 for them. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think ultimately it ended up, a much worse result for Chelsea than it did for us because of the way that they kind of bottled that lead. So yeah, um, you wouldn't know it from how they celebrated, though, as fans. A draw. Right yeah, out. it is quite funny how the the tables are turned. I'm going to add some visuals now for for the people here. We'll try and explain it for the people listening because I think uh, it's fair to say. You know, I'm not going to shoulder the blame on one player, Rory, but. When Martin Odegaard's not fully at it, I think the team isn't fully at it or vice versa. You know, maybe it's he relies on the team around him, um, which we'll talk about. But I think it's fair to say in Seville as well, which we'll, we'll talk a bit more about later, he also was 
lacking his normal level. And he's come back from this international break. I had a look. He played, I think, two lots of 90 minutes for Norway. The one just before he came back was a, a defeat to Spain where he had to do an awful lot of chasing the ball. Um, didn't have a great performance statistically either when you look at it. It feels like that's affected him a little bit. Um, and, and what we've got on the screen here is his, his heat map against Seville, Chelsea, and then his season average sort of heat map, um, which I think is pointing the wrong way, not very helpfully on the season because it should be on the on the yeah. right side because he's always in that right area. But you can see just yeah. sheerly from the amount of from the amount of touches more than anything yeah. else, Rory, that he in these two games really struggled to get into it. Is that is that something you, you felt with the eye test as well? Yeah, I think eye test is always important and it, it does just feel like he's having, or in those two particular games, he's, he just had far less influence on the game. Um, and I think because he's getting the ball less, it's affecting what he does when he's got the ball. So I think we've seen him taking more shots from positions that you wouldn't normally see him take shots, like against Seville. You know, he had one off his right foot with like three players in front of him. You're just like, Erdegaard would never normally shoot from that position. And I think that's a bit of a pressure thing maybe from... He probably acknowledges himself he's not having the influence that he's normally had. Um, and I do think there are probably factors. I think, you know, the amount of running he has to do, the amount, you know, I think he's number one in the entire Premier League for uh, presses and successful presses. And he does the same for Norway. So there is an element of that. But I also think... Another element is that both of those two games, Chelsea and Seville, he's got Jorginho behind him. Um, and even with Declan Rice, I don't think either of those two match Thomas Partey in terms of feeding the ball through the lines and getting the ball to Odegaard. Like, I kind of feel like the amount of touches he has in a game is less about him and more about who's around him. And mm. I massively feel like we're missing Thomas Partey in that, in that six role, feeding him. And if he gets the ball more, He's got more opportunities to to do what we know he can do. So I, I don't understand at all the people that are really kind of digging him out for a couple of performances where he's not been at his best. Um, and, and I'd yeah. like to see Thomas Partey back. I think it's the nature of being the captain and being, I guess, a player that we've seen be so magnificent in certain games. He's always going to be then held to that level, isn't he? But yeah, I agree. It's a... It's a point we need to address, you know, for me. And I don't necessarily, as you say, think it's all about him. It's about how we're getting him into the game. And subsequently, it's having a knock-on effect to Saka, really. I think, you know, Saka's getting less touches. They both operate in that sort of right side of the pitch together. Um, and we need to get them more involved because, you know, between those two, we were so devastating last year in those yeah. areas of the pitch. But naturally, you know, the other team are aware of that and are probably putting lots of tactics into the game to try and remove those two players from the game. And, yep. you know, luckily we've got likes of Jesus and Martinelli com combining on the left when that happens to, uh, to you know, make the difference essentially on the Seville game as well. Um, yeah. But it's important yeah. we get these players back into the game. And I think this touch map is illustrates that. I've got another slide here, which... It's probably quite small for people to to see, but I'll read out the main things. It's essentially comparing Rice and Erdegaard in the Seville and uh, Chelsea games, which quite interestingly, they both had the same 
Uh, Martin Erdegaard was 6.6 on safer score. This is from um, in both games. And Declan Rice was 7.4 in both games, which is quite interesting. Yeah. You know, I picked this out because in both of these games, we played Jorginho alongside Rice and Rice sort of played more as that left eight. So he's playing closer to uh, similar to Odegaard's position, but kind of more what, what Xhaka was doing a bit last season, that sort of second midfielder. Yeah. But it shows, you know, I'm looking at touches and we've got 30 and 36 for Odegaard and 62 and 63 for Declan Rice. Yeah. You know, tw essentially twice as many touches Rice is getting in the game, which your main create creative player and even pretty much top goal scorer and non-penalty goals last season, you don't want to be to be happening. I mean, Rice didn't have the best pass success rate in one of the games. Um, but then the other key thing I'm picking out from this comparison is Jules. I mean, I mean, Rory, what do you do? You have any more words for Rice and his his Jules in these last I few mean, games? Yeah, he's unbelievable. He is absolutely unbelievable, especially at that side of the game. Um, and you can see, I mean, ten ground jewels won in both games um, for him. And I, I think just that's think actually competed. It's actually won. Competed for ten, won. But but competing for them shows something as well. I think you know Erdegaard to compare for the people who can't see competed for four and won two in the two games. Rice competed for twenty. He won nine of them officially, yeah. but. You know, just competing can interfere with what then happens as the next next phase. You know, so getting involved in twenty jewels. I know he's deeper, but twenty versus four—that's pretty, pretty staggering difference. And then when you look at aerial jewels, Rice has competed for four, one or four, um, and Odegaard not had any. So jewels touches. You know, he's just way more involved. And as we discussed, is that the team not getting? getting around Odegaard, getting up the pitch as much as we like. But it's definitely something that needs to be looked at. And I'm sure, you know, the club have got way more advanced statistics than us. But um, I just thought that was yeah. interesting seeing that yeah. comparison between the two. No, it is. And again, part of that, I, f I feel like part of that is a knock-on effect of Jorginho being at six rather than Thomas Partey. I think Jorginho needs more support when it comes to covering ground in midfield and winning duels. And I do feel like, as a result, Declan Rice is probably sitting deeper. I don't know the exact stats, but I would imagine Declan Rice is sitting deeper than Granite Xhaka would have done last season. And, mm -hmm. and the knock-on effect of that is that, especially because he can't play the sort of balls through the lines that Thomas Partey can play, you've got this knock-on effect of winning the ball deeper in the midfield and not being able to get it out to Erdegaard as much as we'd like. Um, and I also think, like you said, because players... Are, Everyone knows Erdegaard and Saka are a massive threat down that side. Teams are setting up to deal with it. Like, if you looked at what Chelsea did, when they were out of possession, they moved Gallagher up into the kind of left wing, left forward position and dropped Mudrick between Saka and Ben White. So they had an extra, a whole extra man, effectively, of cover on our right-hand side, sat between mm. White and Saka, that didn't exist on the other side of the pitch. So it, it is making it more difficult. And obviously what we've got to do is is find ways of capitalising on that on the other side of the pitch, which I thought we did against Sevilla, if you look at where the goals, um, where the goals came from. So, yeah, I think it'll be fine. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the start of last season when we were so good, I think people forget that 
actually Martinelli and Jesus combining in that left left side space was was devastating as well. So I'm not sure if we've had any more news on Jesus's injury state, have we? No, yeah. I don't think so. I don't think we've had the press conference yet. Which I would say is maybe a good sign. It's that hopefully one of those where Arteta doesn't want to say he's fit so that people think he's not. Possibly. Possibly. Because wasn't it I think he was having a scan um yesterday. But we'll yeah. see. Maybe by the time this comes out we, we know he's out for four months, so we won't talk <laughs> too much about that. Yeah. But um you know, you touched on Partey there, and we've had a few questions in about him, Rory. Um, you know, it was a bit of a debate in the summer. Some people were saying, if the Saudi money's there, let's cash in. Others saying, you know, it would be crazy to do that in the same summer we lost Shaka. Um, but obviously, his age, his injury situation led to a lot of mixed reviews because when he's on the pitch, you know, particularly in the last 18 months or so, he's been excellent, you know, when he's been fully fit on the pitch. Um, so to to voluntarily give up a player like that in the same time of Xhaka, I can see why so many people didn't want to do it. Personally, for me, when there was talk of potentially a lot of money coming in for Saudi, I thought it was worth seriously considering um, because of those reasons. And and what we've seen, he's gone out to play with Ghana again with his, with his Arsenal physio, follow him out there doesn't look like it helped um, because he was on the bench for Chelsea, didn't come on. Um, but presumably he was slightly fit for that and then didn't didn't travel to the Spain game, the game in Spain. Club say muscle injury. Um, mm. We won't debate if there's any other stuff. I know there's other things that people are talking about. Um, yeah. We won't debate on that because I think there's enough for us to have this conversation based on his injury. You know, we know yeah. his injury history is enough to provoke this conversation. And ultimately, I think this is why we spent so much on Rice because it covers us a little bit. But to really compete in the Champions League and the Premier League, we would want a player of this quality available in our midfield much more than he is. I mean, he's got African combinations as well, isn't it, in, in January? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Afghan actually doesn't take. I think it only takes two Premier League games because of the way the fixtures are in January with the FA Cup. Um, but the main thing with him is how's he going to come back from those two games exactly. <laughs> more than anything yeah. else. Exactly. So I mean, we've had a couple of questions um, in about it. Should we cash in on him? I think someone said in January. I think with the Afghan and everything, that's probably going to be difficult now. But you know, there's a lot of talk around wide players, strikers. Where do you place this Thomas Partey problem and when we should be maybe looking at replacing him in that sort of priority list? Yeah, it is 100% it's a problem. Um, like a fully fit Thomas Partey that's playing well is, I mean, you know, he's worth 60 or 70 million, which you're never going to get for him. And obviously his injuries mean he's not worth that anyway. But I think the major issue is that Jorginho will go in the summer. I assume his contract will be up. Uh, and even if he doesn't uh, at this point, I, I don't think he's good enough for where we want to be. Um, what I really wanted was, you know, when there were talks about Romeo Lavia or someone like that in the summer, I, I really wanted them to come in for a season whilst we still had Partey so that they could kind of be an understudy uh, to him. 
So my worry is that if we hit some, like we're not going to get rid of him in January because of Afghan and because of how difficult it would be to replace him with any sort of quality. And so I just worry that, you know, we, we reach next summer. I assume we lose El Nani, we lose Jorginho, we lose Thomas Partey. I mean, even with Charlie Patino coming back, that's a almost another whole midfield rebuild in terms mm-hmm. of a defensive aspect of our midfield. So it's a tough one. It is a tough one. And when we talk about cashing in on him, I mean, there were rumours we could have got potentially like 40 million from Saudi in the summer. I don't know if that was ever actually true. And it sounded like clubs in Europe weren't willing to pay more than sort of 20, 25 million for him. So when you talk about cashing in, I I don't think you massively can anyway. Um, When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, it gets to that point, doesn't it? Because say we all, the, you know, Saudi maybe lose their interest and the only offer we've got is like a 10 million now and an extra 5 million next summer from Juventus or something. That feels like the type of offer we might get next summer. Yeah. It's like, even if he is unavailable, is he worth more than that? But then there's the counter argument of he's filling a squad space if he's here and and we could be getting someone reliable. So it's a really tricky situation, but, you know, I'd be, I think I'd be trying to find a solution for him. um, If I was the club to, to, in terms of finding a replacement and also finding a new club for him. I don't think, I think when we do sell him, if we do sell him, it's going to be a figure people are very unhappy about, especially the people who, really really like him I think we all really like him when he's fitting on the pitch but it's reliability is is one of the most important factors for Arteta we've seen that with like the players he signed for the most part um, and the players he's let go as well he's let go of injury prone players so yeah it's it's tricky you know a replacement is the big thing for me and you know maybe we'll talk about that as we move into January um, around players who we could look at. But as we've seen, not cheap. You know, Caicedo in the end, 115. Lavia was 60 or something, wasn't he? So, yep. yeah, it wouldn't be cheap. Tricky position. It's a tricky position to fill. <laughs> really tricky. So, we've got another question in around the Tommy Asus Inchenko. And I think we can go back to the Seville game a little bit with that and the Chelsea game. Because in Chelsea game, they helpfully sort of played half each. Um, Tinchenko obviously picking up that yellow card in the first half. Yep. We've got the heat maps for the two on the screen. I mean, it won't surprise people to learn that Tinchenko sort of more touches centrally than Tomiyasu was. Um, Tomiyasu was a bit wider. And interestingly, he's got a few more touches further forward as well. We saw that when he came on in the Man City game, didn't we? Sort of provide that pre-assist for uh, pre-pre-assist. I know pre-assist, wasn't it? Knocked down to yeah. Havertz. Yeah. For the Martinelli goal. 
Yeah. And uh, it feels like that is a bit of a tactic, doesn't it, for us now? Because he did get forward a few times in this Chelsea game as well. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think Arteta's started figuring out how to utilise him more. Um, I think as a traditional attacking fullback, like if he was trying to do the same as, or when he was trying to do a similar sort of role to Ben White, it never seemed to work. I don't think he's got that ability to kind of overlap uh, Martinelli or whoever on that side. But he's he's learning uh, how to move into midfield, which is really promising. Obviously, he's not as good technically as Zinchenko. Um, but like you said, he's becoming an option moving forwards. We're beginning to pick out those sort of diagonal balls into him. Um, and a, a couple of times against uh, Seville, he was almost the furthest player forward at times. So it's promising that that's become a proper option. Obviously, I think Jurian Timber was always the kind of, that was the idea of who was going to come in for Zinchenko, who I don't think is capable of playing a full season of games. He never did at, at City. Mm. Um but yeah, it's, it's a huge benefit to have Tommy Asu play in the way that he is. Again, I don't want to. I don't want it to sound like I'm escaping Jorginho, but I remember making a couple of videos last year specifically about how Zinchenko's performances declined when Jorginho played, um, just because of the work that the left eight has to do to help out Jorginho. It, it just it last season as well. Whenever it was Jorginho and Xhaka, both Xhaka and Zinchenko looked worse. And again. I feel like I've seen the same this season when Jorginho's played. So I, I feel like people, again, are turning on Zinchenko a little bit uh, for various reasons. Some of them I don't even think are to do with the way that he plays. Um, but it is exciting that, that Tommy Asu can come in. And, and at the moment, I think he's done enough in his appearances off the bench and in that start against Seville to to argue his place in the starting lineup for a few games. Yeah, it feels like they're both coming in field, but for maybe slightly different reasons and like Zinchenko comes in for the technical ability and to control from deeper it feels like when Tommy Asu coming in it's to win those duels help win those duels you know yeah. both airily and on the ground and as you mentioned there when when Jorginho's your six maybe Tommy Asu tucking in just to help with that physical element more because Zinchenko and Jorginho at the base is quite a lightweight midfield it isn't is. it? But, but Zinchenko and Partey we know worked so well last season yep. and you know Zinchenko and Rice have worked well in a couple of games this season so yeah we've got options you know they're definitely different players playing in similar-ish areas of the pitch as you can see with their heat maps but offering us um, something slightly different but you know the question we've had in was who deserves to start between Tommy Asu and Zinchenko my my feeling would be I'd still start Zinchenko against Sheffield United. I think very different type of game to the last two we've had. I mean, do you see it like that, Rory? Or do you think the person who uh, is playing better should should start by default? Yeah, it is a tricky one. I think traditionally I'd have, I'd have agreed that a game at home against a Sheffield, you'd want Zinchenko. They're going to sit in deep, be hard to break through. You want that technical ability, the, the the vision and weight of pass that Zinchenko's got to break the lines. You want that. Um, but I do, I, I feel like I have come more down now into actual looking at partnerships. And so if we're looking at Jorginho in there, I probably want Tommy Asu. But if we're looking at Partey, I probably want Zinchenko. Um, and obviously do you, we don't know do what you that's going to be. Yeah, I mean, let's presume Partey's injured, which we don't know for sure for this game. Yeah. Um, do you think Jorginho is going to start again? Or do you think this is a game that Havertz 
could come in and Rice plays deeper again because yeah, I, I would like to see Havertz and Zinchenko and, and Rice deeper yeah. for me. Yeah, I mean, what we could even see, I think, if Jesus is out, is Havertz at nine, Fabio Vieira as the left eight, Rice as the six. And again, I think if Rice is the six, Zinchenko plays, I think that's a better option. Um but it, it, I think it is more now down to matchups within our squad rather than who we're against. Um, mm. And you can see even on that heat map, the way that Tommy Asu defends that left back spot, kind of like a traditional left back, um, it, it makes us way more solid at the back because Zinchenko gets exposed by that diagonal ball over the top to the opposition right winger an awful lot. Um, yeah. And Tommy Asu doesn't. So... Yeah, what I found we'll interesting when I looked at the stats is because we all felt like Tomiyasu defended that side really well and it just shut it down kind of thing, didn't we? Like watching the game. But yeah, when you look at the stats, he didn't make a tackle. Yeah. And so I think, you know, this he made one interception, Zinchenko made none. Zinchenko only made one tackle, Tomiyasu none. Zinchenko was dribbled past once and made narrow leading to shot, which Tomiyasu didn't. But what I'm trying to say is I think it was more that Chelsea didn't even try that, once yeah. Tomiyasu was there. Like the tactic yeah. to expose Sinchenko that they were clearly working on just yeah. went out the window when he went off. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly it. I think it's the stats don't say it because well, it didn't happen. But you, you, I think if you're a Chelsea player and you look up and you've got to try and clear Tomiyasu, who's six foot two and and sat in a more deep position, obviously that the option just isn't even there for you to go for it. So. Yeah, yeah, and fair play to Arteta making that sub at half time. You know, he was on a yellow card. They were clearly trying to expose it. They were having some joy. Yeah, you know, in, in Arteta's first season or so, we had such terrible red card statistics, and I think he's made a few subs like this in the last year or so, which have shown he's learned a little bit from that, and he's not afraid to take off a very inf- influential vocal player who quite clearly wasn't very happy he'd come off but um you know we've potentially got a point from that game that we wouldn't have got had he not been decisive and made that that halftime sub so yeah credit to him i there. think uh yeah i think arteta it's one of the because uh, i guess we kind of forget that he is still a young manager and learning things and i think one of the biggest areas he's developed in is that kind of in-game management and decisions that he makes within games i think you know the three points against city was pretty much directly down to him bringing on Tommy Asu, Havertz, pushing them both up alongside each other. Um, and then again against Chelsea, when he changed it, took Erdegaard off, put Havertz up there, and it worked again. So credit's got to go to him for maybe not getting it right at the start of the game, but at least changing things so that we came out with a point. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, Tommy Asu, we don't have his stats here for the, the Seville game, but felt like he had another strong defensive display I think the key thing here is he's looks fully fit again yeah I mean last summer he not summer of course it was a winter world cup he went to the world cup not fit really but Japan kept bringing him on didn't they when they needed him because they they had quite a good campaign and I think that just ruined him a bit for the rest of the season um yeah but, and he he did some speaking in the summer about that sort of difficulty with injury and getting back into the team getting back into rhythm but you know, it's, he's had a real opportunity here. You talked about Timber there. Had Timber not picked up that injury, I wonder how much opportunity Tommy Asu would have had because it feels like Timber would have been ahead of him. 
was playing a lot in that left back role, wasn't he? Quite well in in pre season. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's testament to Tommy Asu, to be fair, the way he's come through, because I think even at the start of the season, you'd maybe, even after Tim got injured, you'd arguably say that Kevior could have had a better shout in that left-back role for mm. when Sinchenko couldn't play. So Tommy Asu's done well to kind of cement himself, certainly, as the backup to Zinchenko and potentially a rival for that start. There seems to be a curse at left-back, though, doesn't it? I mean, we sold Tierney because he couldn't be relied upon. Zinchenko, yeah. terrible injury issues. Tommy Asu has as well. And then Timber comes in, plays a couple of games there, and uh, does his ACL. So, yeah, it's frustrating. Make sure we don't play Saka for one game in left back, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have one more. Well, we had quite a few questions, but one more question we were going to touch on today around centre forward because there's a young chap, Santiago Jimenez, I think is how we pronounce it, from Feyenoord, who is scoring a lot of goals over in Holland that a lot of people have done previously. But I think, you know, I think neither of us have watched a lot of him live, but he's a player who is clearly a physical sort of striker, more um, more in the Ivan Tony mould, not exactly like him, but a lot of people have sort of, I don't know how many credible links we've had to him, but I think because of his profile and because he's quite similar to players like Tony, who we have been linked to, people are sort of asking the question, should we consider a move for someone like him instead of Tony? And, you know, the basic things tell you that Jimenez is, is 22 years old. I think Tony's what, 28, 27, 28. 27, yeah. And um, even with the issues around Tony, I think you're looking at at least 50 million to get him from Brentford. I don't know the fees around Jimenez, if you've seen any numbers, Rory, but... Um, Not massively. Transfer market, have got him at about €40 million, Euros, but... Yeah. Yeah, it feels like maybe similar amount of money. I mean, we've not... We're, we're going to do maybe a video uh, as we get towards January looking a bit closer at this player, but on the basis of would you like to see us sign someone more Premier League proven if we go for a forward, or do you think because we've got maybe more experienced striker like Jesus, we could go for someone of this profile of Jimenez, a younger player in a, in a league less proven. It, it is a tricky one. Like if you're looking at a January signing, particularly for me, you always want a January signing to come in. I, I guess the best comparison you could make would be Trossard versus Mudrick. Uh, and the way Trossard came in, hit the ground running, has provided kind of the goal contributions that we wanted from him, whereas Mudrix you know, may be getting a bit better now, but certainly hit the ground really slowly. I kind of look at it and go, if we're chasing a title again, and we're chasing the Champions League specifically this season, I'd rather bring in Ivan Toney, uh, because I trust that he knows what he's doing in the Premier League uh, and will hit the ground running. Longer term, obviously you look at someone like Jimenez, much younger, plenty of goals but again you know goals in the Eredivisie for a team that are kind of doing very well in Eredivisie at the moment it's you you just never know you never know if he, he's that good or if it's just kind of circumstance is favouring him at the moment so I think I'd probably go for Ivan Tony, um, but he's definitely one to watch yeah I think for me it depends if Jesus, we find out, is now out for considerable time or he gets another couple of injuries, then I would be with you with the Tony. If if Jesus can stay fit and we've got him, I think 
you know, we've got that more experienced striker. I think someone like Jimenez or, you know, I'm not necessarily saying him, but someone, you know, a bit more unproven, but a bit younger with maybe a higher ceiling. Um, I would probably go for if we could rely on Jesus, but I think maybe the next few months will tell us that. I don't know if well, Tony seems to be available in January, doesn't he? Because he's kind of not started the season because of the ban and Brentford have yeah. seemingly sort of just signed off from him. Yes. Uh, I yeah. doubt Feyenoord would, would sell him as unless it's a huge amount of money, but can they resist a huge amount of money? I don't know. I'm not sure on their financial situation, but just looking at Jimenez, he's, I think what's got people really excited was last night, uh, scoring two goals in the Champions League against Lazio. So he's raising yeah. his profile. And with that, you know, I'm sure Chelsea will fancy him because they could do with another striker, can they? And as soon as they find out we're interested or other clubs who recruit well are interested, then I'm sure they'll look at it. Uh, so I think if you look at, you know, great examples, Mudrick, it's this time of year they start performing well in the Champions League and suddenly their, their price absolutely rockets. Mudrick, I, I looked back at it literally a year ago to the day or yesterday when I looked at it. Fabrizio had started tweeting about Mudrick and the form that he was in, talking about a, a 40 to 50 million pound player. And by January, literally two months later, he's suddenly up at like 80, 90 million. And I just worry that some decent Champions League performances, his numbers in Eredivisie do look good, but some decent Champions League performances suddenly massively rocket a player's value. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to think. Yeah, I think if this is a player we want, I would hope it's not because he's done so well in the you know yesterday and in the last couple of weeks. I hope it's a player, and there were some links even in the summer when you know he had a decent season last season, but not like how he started this season. So hopefully, if it is a player we're looking at, it's someone we've already done a lot of groundwork for. You know, the Declan Rice deal we were clearly working on for a long time before it happened. Gabriel Jesus as well. So there's a, always a lot going on behind the scenes. You know, the club are very rarely reactive. You know, Trossard was maybe a reactive move, but a player that was probably on a list somewhere for some time as well. So it's going to be really interesting to see what we do. I still think, as I say, Tony, if we need that reliable player, if Jesus is struggling, can give us more of that instant impact, as you say. But I think the club, I struggle to see the club spending 50, 60 million on him considering his, his age and um, off-the-field stuff as well, which I think does factor in for, for Arteta big time. So we'll see. I mean, we're not too far away from January now. We're, we're moving into November at pace. Yeah. Top of my our worry. Champions League group. Go yeah. On. No, my, I was just going to say, my, my worry is that this January is not actually going to be a particularly active window for us with the way people are talking about our FFP the kind of on the borderline of FFP so yeah I think a sale's needed but a sale is very possible with with the squad we've got now you know we've got to a position where it's not like we're going to release this player and that player it's or we could get 20-30 million for this player that we're not actually using that much so hopefully yeah. although we did say that before the summer and uh, the club weren't brilliant at selling so yeah, yeah exactly. let's see what happens all right, we'll wrap it up there. I think um, good to run through both of those games. All in all, you know, frustrating first 
70 minutes against Chelsea, but coming out with a point. And then if you offered us both the point against Chelsea and a win against Seville, probably, you know, you wouldn't be too unhappy about that before. No, nah, um, wouldn't have been a disastrous week. Puts us in a really strong position in the group because we now have two home games. So we've got Seville at home next and then Lons at home. Win both of those or, you know, even get four points and certain results go away. It could give us a free shot in the PSV away game and still top the group because everyone else is very helpfully drawn. Um, yeah. So an easy group has been made even easier, if we're being honest. Um, so let's make sure we capitalise fully on that. And we made a big step to do that against Seville on Tuesday night. We will be back next week. Uh, we've got, it's West Ham next week, isn't it? Midweek. Yeah, West Ham away. Yeah, so we'll probably, that's not as a significant game for us, I think, as Seville. So we'll probably try and talk before that um, on Monday next week. So please subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube for the first time, please subscribe on YouTube. Please follow Rory. His handle is on screen. Or if you're listening, it's at Rory underscore talks underscore ball. I've been Oli Price Bates. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Sports Social Podcast Network. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.